From Arizona Public Media, this is Arizona Spotlight. I'm Christopher Conover, in for Mark McLemore. Coming up, we meet a group of high school seniors on the Tohono O'odham Nation headed off to college with the support and expectations of their community. We'll also hear from author Michael Blake, who wrote a book on President Theodore Roosevelt, the man he calls the Cowboy President. We take a tour of a piece of living history, visiting a plane that dropped paratroopers on D-Day 75 years ago. And we'll hear about what Pima County Library officials see for the future. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. It's graduation season in southern Arizona and across the country. Last week, Baba Kivari High School on the Tohono O'odham Nation celebrated its high school seniors planning to attend college, vocational schools, and the military after graduation. Emma Gibson has the story. In an auditorium full of community members, parents, and students of all ages, 31 seniors from Baba Kivari High School twist in their seats as they wait for the college signing day celebration to begin. Let's give another round of applause for the class of 2019. The students are about to commit to complete their post-high school goals. For some, it's going to a university or community college. For one, it's to become a Marine. Edna Morris is the superintendent of Baba Kibari Unified School District. As she looks at the high school seniors, her gaze pivots to the fourth graders sitting in the back. She tells the seniors this promise to get their degrees shows indigenous students of all ages that they have a place in higher education. Your commitment today is not just to sign on the piece of paper, but to finish. We want that data. In Indian country, we all know that that data doesn't look good, but you can start and make that data wonderful for all Native American students. It's that important. According to the National Center of Education Statistics, about a quarter of young American Indian or Alaskan Natives were in college in 2015. Native Americans made up 1% of all undergraduate students in 2014. Rebecca Cohen, the college and career mentor at the school, says 79% of the seniors participated in College Signing Day. She says over the last six years, more and more students have enrolled in post-secondary education. Last year we had over 50% of our student body enroll in a two-year or four-year college immediately after graduation, so within one semester. And that's up from about, I want to say, 12 or 13% when I came on in 2013. Many of the students decided to go to Tha'ana Otham Community College, but there were some who pledged to go to art schools, Northern Arizona University, Arizona State University, or another institution. Community, 
One of the students preparing for the Ana Aotham Community College is Daniel Marquez. I'm going to be majoring in business over there because when I come back to my community out here, I want to be able to start up a skate shop. <laughs> It'll be pretty cool. Marquez says he's been to a couple of the college signing events since the school started the tradition in 2015. He says he's looked forward to coming up on the stage and going to college for years. Not every person on the reservation just goes to college. It's always going to make a big difference if we have more kids going there. It could always just benefit everybody. Marquez's friend, Jonah Patricio, says he'll be going to the Institute of American Indian Arts to study cinematic arts and technology. He says college signing days become a celebration of the support systems the students can rely on back home. You don't see a lot of Native people going out there to actually pursue their dream. Like Everybody has the opportunity, but it's just finding that self-determination and support system to, to get there. But I believe it's a really big thing that all communities need so they can have that leader to look up to and hopefully inspire others to do the same. An assistant professor from the University of Arizona named Jameson Lopez spoke to the students about how his family first went to college. He says when his mother was a child, a Tha'ana'atha man came to her reservation in Southern California and introduced her to a group of Native American college students. He saw her and he said, you can go to college. You can make it. And my mom at the age of 12 years old, she believed them because they looked like her, they smelled like her, they ate like her, they laughed like her. And she saw these native young people who were going to college come back to our reservation and tell her she could do the same thing. And thanks to a Tohono Atha man that came from this reservation coming to our res, my mom effectively changed the legacy of our family and it's why I stand here today. Jordan Francisco is also following her family's legacy by enlisting in the Marine Corps. She says she thinks it's important to prove that she can do anything a man can do during boot camp. After all the students signed their commitment papers and the lucky ones won prizes from the raffle, Anna Marie Stevens, the governing board clerk for the district, asked the people in the audience who completed college to stand up. A couple dozen people rose. Okay guys, look around. These people are your support system. These people are the people that know how to navigate a system that many Native Americans do not attend. But they are a resource for you. With support, she says they'll make it through the next step and realize they are stronger than they think. For Arizona Spotlight, I'm Emma Gibson. It is hard to fail, but it is worse never to have tried to succeed. That quote from Theodore Roosevelt gave inspiration to author Michael F. Blake, who wrote a book on the 26th president called The Cowboy President. Blake told Mark McLemore that the larger-than-life legend of President Roosevelt provided plenty of rich subject matter. You know, they always said President Reagan had great charisma. Theodore had it in spades. I mean, he could just smile at you and... Literally, a room would light up. You know, he just had charisma like you wouldn't believe. What's funny is how many people think he had a D 
deep voice or something like that, when he actually had a very high voice. And I was trying to get the voice down, and I listened to recordings, and the first thing came to mind is he reminded me of William Powell in the early 30s films when he would talk, why, Asta, that's not quite the way. So it was like, that's the way Theodore talked. Now take it up an octave. And people heard him. He was probably one of the few presidents who had a real high popularity amongst the people. But he was quite an orator. I mean, people could hear him even after he got shot. You know, he was he was had a uh, assassination attempt made. And thankfully, he had an overcoat. He had his jacket inside his jacket pocket on the inside was a 50 page speech folded up. And in his vest, he had his metal eyeglass case and the bullet went all through that went into him. And not far from the heart. Now, had he not had that speech in the eyeglass case, it probably would have killed him. Even though he was hurt, he insisted on giving a 90-minute speech. And at first, people thought he was joking about it. But then when he opened the shirt and showed the blood stain, everybody went silent. And he gave a 90-minute speech, you know, albeit he wasn't as forceful as he normally would be. And went to the hospital, and they wound up leaving the bullet in him. They never took it out. Give us a few words about his vision for what became the National Park System. Tell us, what was the kernel of the idea that he wanted to share with the nation? People back east in his time believed that we had unlimited resources. We were told there's plentiful game, there's plentiful trees, there's plentiful water. So when he gets out there, when he goes out to hunt his buffalo in 1883 and then buys his cattle ranch, he realizes that, you know, we don't have an inexhaustible supply here. He's watching forces get clear cut and nobody's going, okay, well, maybe we should reforest. Maybe we shouldn't take everything, leave some. And, and the same thing with the buffalo and, and such. And at that time, we only had Yellowstone as a national park. And the Northern Pacific Railroad wanted to run a railroad through the middle of Yellowstone, if you can imagine. And they wanted to mine, and they wanted to get the timber, and he was aghast at this. So 1887, he founds Boone and Crockett Club, and that was kind of the beginning of protecting the national parks, because they worked with Congress to pass laws, and that's when the Army came in to protect the national park. By the time Theodore leaves office, he has set aside 230 million acres, which include eight national parks, 18 national monuments, uh, expands and creates national forests, and sets aside 51 federal bird sanctuaries. So, Michael, you decided to call the book The Cowboy President. Tell us why. Well, he first off, Theodore was referred to many times as the cowboy president. Probably the greatest greatest one was Senator Mark Hanna, who had been a, a close associate of President McKinley. When McKinley is assassinated and Theodore is sworn in as president, Hanna was heard to say, now we've got that damn cowboy. <laughs> uh, I came to it because when I was eight years old, being a cowboy crazy kid, I got a photo book from my parents of U.S. presidents, and I knew about Washington, and Lincoln I was somewhat interested in because of my interest in the Civil War, but then I started looking at all the presidents from Lincoln on, and it's like, all these guys were around at the time of the Old West. They're all wearing suits and ties and top hats, 
None yeah. of these guys are cowboys. Mm -hmm. And I turned the page, and there he is in his buckskin shirt, his cowboy hat, gun on his hip, standing next to his horse, and the caption said something to the effect of, Theodore Roosevelt was a Dakota cowboy. And I thought, well, there you go. That fits my pistol. My favorite part of his life was his time as a cowboy. Here he goes west, and he's a sickly, reedy young man. He's got asthma. He had in, uh, intestinal problems, which today I believe we would probably call it um, Crohn's disease. And he goes west. And after a traumatic thing that happens in his life of losing both his mother and his wife, shortly, just days after she gives birth, both his mother and wife die on the same day. So he just flees to the west. And I see how the West changes him. You know, I see how it's not just the land. And that's where he, the seeds of the conservation president are planted and watered, so to speak. And some people like to say, oh, the cowboy way or the coat of the West. And they put them on plaques now and sell them because it looks nice and all that. It's all very true. And it's still there. On the other hand, let's talk a little bit about his education. What drove him in that area, and how did he become as learned as he was about the world around him? He was homeschooled. All the children were homeschooled because the Roosevelt family was fairly well off. He was a self-taught ornithologist. He just read books, but he read books about what interested him. You could go for a walk with him. He'd hear some, a bird sing, and he'd say, oh, that's a such-and-such -such bird. And he had it right on the dime. He amazed John Burroughs with it when they walked through uh, Yellowstone together. He loved to read. He was horribly nearsighted. I mean, before he got glasses, he couldn't see more than 10 feet away. And that was a good day. And, of course, when he got his glasses, his world opened up. But he was very much into reading. He, the man winds up, as an adult, he reads two books a week. And he retained so much. Some people have said that they believed he might have had something close to a photographic memory. Originally, when he went to Harvard, he wanted to do stuff with wildlife and natural science and, and things like that. But what he didn't like about that class was that everybody sat in a lab and looked through microscopes. And he believed, look, if you're going to study wildlife and you're going to study animals, you got to get out in the field. And he could not be cooped up in a room. He had to be out in the open. So he gave that up, and he finished Harvard, and then he went to Columbia Law School. And he got tired of the law school because, again, <laughs> it was all book-related, and he didn't feel that the law was really for the people. You know, it was for a select group. So he gets talked into running for a New York State Assembly, and he runs, and he wins, and he serves his time in New York State Assembly, and that's where he starts his political career. And, and during that time, keep in mind, he, he's a New York State Assemblyman. He's writing books. He's a cattleman. He becomes a civil service commissioner, New York police commissioner. Then he becomes the assistant secretary of the Navy. Then he leads his Rough Riders up the hills in Cuba during the Spanish-American War, comes back, wins the New York governorship, is then put in the position of vice president because he offended some of the Republican Party bosses and they wanted to bury him. And then what happens? McKinley gets killed and he becomes president. Did he ever get tired of winning? <laughs> no, no. And, you know, he didn't mind losing so much as long as he fought a good fight. 
that's what he wanted. He said, if you lost, as long as you did your best, that was fine, you know, but he rarely lost. Mark McLemore spoke with Michael F. Blake about the cowboy president, the American West, and the making of Theodore Roosevelt. Blake will present an evening of history at the McKee Amphitheater in Grand Canyon State Park on Sunday, May 19th. I'm Christopher Conover, in for Mark McLemore. The 75th anniversary of D-Day is June 6th. Ceremonies marking the battle at Normandy are planned for that day. Recently, a little piece of that history visited Tucson for fuel and to show off for local supporters. The D-Day doll, a plane that flew three missions during D-Day, stopped here on its way from California to Europe. She towed uh, CG-4 gliders, which are bigger than doll, actually, and uh, with troopers and jeeps and things in it, and uh, a lot of coordination, a lot of luck, and a lot of skill. Tim Terrace is one of the pilots of the D-Day doll. Those gliders towed by the C-53 Sky Trooper were filled with members of the 101st Airborne to reinforce the D-Day invasion. Now, 75 years later, Dahl and her new crew are headed back to those same beaches. He says every time he gets behind the controls, he thinks of those early flight crews. The two front seaters were 22 and 21, and everybody in the back, and there were 28 paratroopers at one point, uh, were younger. So, uh, and then she had the kids and so on in the uh, gliders. I talked with Terrace under the wing of the D-Day doll while she was parked at the millionaire private hangar just off the main runway at Tucson International. He says the doll, as he calls the plane, is a far cry from the F-111s and F-16s he flew in the Air Force. She has no autopilot. She has no anti-icing or de-icing. She has no climate control. Uh, and she has no running water on board. My wife refers to her as Spartan. And uh, the fact of the matter is, uh, structurally she's sound, mechanically she's sound, and she is very tame. Once you apply the pilot kind of things to her to take whatever you're up to, she's uh, static, she stays put, she doesn't wander off. All she needs, it's kind of like going down the freeway, she need, just needs a little touching and a little monitoring, but she'll go wherever you want her to go, and she's very good about it. The flight from California back to England and eventually the beaches of Normandy is long, even in a modern jetliner. But for a plane that rolled off the assembly line in 1943, Tara says plenty of planning is needed. Dow carries 800 gallons of fuel. She burns 100 gallons an hour, and she goes 150 miles an hour. So it's pretty simple math. She goes two and a half miles a minute. Uh, we would not run her out of gas. So if we go uh, six hours, we've gone 900 miles. The uh, Between Maine, Newfoundland, which is Goose Bay, this is the land route, the blue spruce route that the airplanes took and have been taking for years on up to Greenland, Iceland, and down into Scotland and then into the UK. We're going the same distance. Those legs are uh, 640 miles apiece. Uh, we will be below 5,000 feet. Uh, we actually uh, had to put some modern electronics into Dahl, and it's mostly communication and electronic stuff that makes us appear like an airliner. And we also have a downlink satellite. She has no radar. She couldn't see that building, except we get a downlink of a satellite radar so we can see as if we did. Uh, we watch the weather very closely 
and we rely on a little bit of luck. On the anniversary of D-Day, the D-Day doll will join hundreds of other World War II aircraft to fly over the beaches of Normandy and the cemetery for those who died there. Tara says D-Day was not the doll's only brush with history. Market Garden in France, and then on into Bastogne, and on into Germany. Those were all some, obviously because we know the name, some very famous, very heavy battles. But she made it out. Uh, obviously, yeah, she's a lucky plane. We call it the Big Sky Theory. Uh, it was a, a tough neighborhood to be in. Everybody on the ground did not want you there. Some of the people in the air did not want you there. Uh, the Normandy drop was conducted at night in the weather. Uh, under austere conditions, the Holland drop was conducted in the daytime to insert paratroopers and get uh, supplies and things into the ground forces as they advanced. Beginning in 1941, more than 10,000 planes like D-Day Doll were made. Now only a few dozen remain in flying condition. After leaving Tucson, the D-Day Doll will make stops in Ohio and the East Coast before hopscotching across the Atlantic in time for the June 6th D-Day ceremonies. She'll make an appearance at the Paris Air Show later in June before returning to California. In all, the D-Day Doll and her crew will be on the road for nearly two months. The Pima County Public Library is taking a look at itself. A public comment period on what the library is doing right and wrong and what people want from the public library just wrapped up. Karen Prechtel-Altman is a deputy director of the Pima County Library. She joined us to talk about the results. Sometimes things are surprising, sometimes not so much. We've learned, for example, that people value the library for customer service and they value us as a community partner. We've also learned that we need a lot more space for the community. Um, we have competing needs and we have difficulty balancing those needs between, let's say, computer users and people that need quiet space. Um, another very important thing we've learned is that we need more multicultural and multilingual staff to represent our community. When you say you need more space, is this a, an issue of we need more libraries or the libraries we have? For example, my library is Woods. It's a small place. Do we just need to make Woods bigger? It's a little bit of both. We, um, there are some library deserts in our community where we could grow and add locations, but almost every one of our libraries is undersized based on the need of the, their communities. So it, if we could, we could expand most of our libraries and still fill them up with people. People who might not be library users may think of that building as just a place where books are. There's so much more inside, and, and that seems to be part of the need to expand their sizes. We still are in the business of books, both print and digital, but we have really turned into community centers for many of our neighborhoods um, where we're teaching people how to um, build their resumes and get jobs, or we're teaching new skills, or we have places for kids to come and grow and learn STEM activities. Um, meeting rooms at our libraries are one of the highest utilized resources for community groups because there are very little other places in the community for free meeting space. You mentioned computers and computer usage. I know 
every time I walk into the library, the computers are full. What are people using computers in libraries for? That's an interesting question. Um, a lot of people think that everyone is connected to the internet at home. But the reality is there's a, a large percentage of our community that does not have internet access at home. And they're coming to the library to do some of the most basic things. Applying um, for jobs has to be done online now. Um, communicating with relatives through email or Facebook is super important. And sometimes the library is the only place where um, our community members can connect to each other. So we really, it's a huge role that we serve, um, bridging that digital divide for all of our community members. So from what the library is learning from this latest round of community discussions, what's the path forward? We're not done with this process yet. Um, we've looked at all sorts of data. We've looked at um, what we call the voice of the customer by interviewing stakeholders and having community meetings. And now we're working with our staff um, who represent many different locations and departments of the library to, um, to do basically an analysis of our strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, threats, and trends. And as we look at all of those, we, we will move forward to create um, overarching goals and then measurable object objectives for the whole library system as well as every library location, every internal work team and committee, and our support services departments. When you talk about looking at services and overall goals, you mentioned we have library deserts uh, in Pima County. Is one of the goals to to fill in, maybe not totally get rid of? Uh, well, I'm sure the goal is to totally get rid of, but the realistic goal, maybe fill in some of those deserts? Absolutely. In fact, um, we're in the process of designing two new libraries right now, one in that will be in the Vale community and one that will be in the Sawarita community. But we are also going to look at other ways to um, to reach customers in areas where there are no libraries nearby. And there are models in other library systems across the nation where libraries are setting up little storefronts in malls or they're um, using electronic resources like kind of like the red box of the libraries um, in communities where there are no locations. So we're going to look at all different ways of reaching everybody. That was Karen Prechtel-Altman from the Pima County Public Library. Thanks for listening to Arizona Spotlight. You can find our podcast on iTunes and on the NPR One phone app. The show originates from the AZPM radio studios. Andrea Kelly is the news director. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. I'm Christopher Conover. Mark McLemore will be back next week. Thanks for joining us. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.